And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the letters that you've been sending me to my email address, themomentbk at gmail.com. I love getting them. I respond to everyone. And I'm really thrilled about the way in which people are listening to this podcast. Uh, I can feel how closely you're listening and uh, the way in which you're relating to it or grappling with some of the things that the guests say. And it's um, super inspiring to me. So thanks for that. Thanks for the ratings and reviews on iTunes and for you know tweeting to me um, at Brian Koppelman. On Twitter, today's guest, Phil Helmuth, um, I'm super excited about this. Phil uh, has had an enormous impact on my life. And, uh, you know, when we were writing Rounders, Levine and I, there's no question that Phil and Huck Seed were the young poker players who, who we found just incredibly compelling and uh, about whom we were fascinated. And uh, a little-known fact is that the Johnny Chan scene in Atlantic City was inspired by something that happened with Phil. I'll talk about that. There's so much I want to talk about, about who Phil is, why he is the way he is, why his reputation is what it is. But it's important to note just at the outset, we are talking about the most successful player in the history of the World Series of Poker, the most bracelets. Clearly one of the greatest tournament poker players who ever lived. And he'll be here soon, Phil Helmuth. So stick around. I mean, you don't even have to stick around, even though he's not coming for a second. It's going to roll right into it. You have to stick around for literally, in the old version of the word, literally. I mean, just... Under 10 seconds, and he'll be here. All right, Phil Helmuth is here. Um, Phil, I introduced you ahead of time. I told the people. Uh, they already know who you are, but I told them. So thanks for doing this. And thanks for having me at your uh, charity poker last night. That was a really fun night. Nice. We raised 920000 for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So that's uh, seven years in a row. We've raised $6 million. I've emceed it. So I've raised like $33 million for various charities at events that I've emceed. And uh, I think that poker has become the number one vehicle for raising money. We just pass golf as far as you know, having events, private events. And it makes sense. I have another one in Chicago on Wednesday. We're going to raise $1.2 million. Um, I do Eva Longoria's event, uh, President Clinton's event. We raise $2 million. I do awesome. Tiger Woods' event every year. Uh, yeah, I, I saw these guys at the tables, and they were saying that uh, you know a bunch of them go on this. They almost go on a circuit of playing these charity tournaments. These wealthy guys who are giving back in this way and having a great time getting to play with you and your friends. And you came in third. Yeah, I came in third, which was kind of fun. <laughs> do you remember who won? I we can give the person a shout out if you oh do. Oh my goodness, I can't quite remember his all name. Right. Well, but, uh, listen, drunk hedge fund guy, congratulations. <laughs> we all we're all happy. Young, you, very young hedge fund young, guy. Young drunk hedge fund guy, we're happy that you pulled there were it like off. There like seven of his group were there and right, uh, cheering him on at the end. Right, right, right. And and they were like proud of their boy. I said, "Does he going to move up in stature in the firm?" And they said, "Yes." Good. <laughs> of course he is. Well, all right, I think it's a good place to start, which is so you've raised all this money, and I watched you last night, and I, I watched you emceeing. There were what, how many people were there? Thousand? Oh my goodness! I don't know. It had to be at least five hundred people. It was great. And many, many tables of people playing poker. And Phil, you were playing, and then you were walking around with a microphone and keeping everybody um, engaged and enthusiastic, and you made everybody feel special and like they were part of it. And that thing that you do, and you've raised all this money, and you do all this good stuff, is so at odds with the public perception of who you are. And so how do you synthesize that stuff in your own head? And, and how, like, how do you process the dissonance between 
that perception and 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 what you you know what you think of as the best of yourself. Well, at least at, at the very least, the public, the worldwide public, is confused about me, right? And so um, you know they know that I'm not the bad boy. So I'm portrayed as the bad boy. I lose it like John McEnroe would lose it, and not nearly as often as people think. It's more of a rare thing. Um, I'll be playing at a World Series tournament. Maybe I'll be you know, 22 hours into it playing great poker and someone just does something that's just so ridiculous and so out of the ordinary and so insane and it ends up costing me a title, you know, and then I just see the ridiculousness of it like this guy would never have made this move, you know, in a hundred days he might make it once and I just, I see the absurdity of it and I'm like, oh my God and I just realized that I just was cost a tournament by this insane move. And then unfortunately, I don't handle it very well. But I'm 22 hours in. I have a little monologue. You know, you've heard my lines. Yeah. If it weren't for luck, I'd win them all. <laughs> yes. But I mean, but going deeper, sure. I, mean, I think that that's a narrative that we know and it's certainly a narrative that you've, we've all talked mm. about. But like the, the deeper part of it is, is I think there is – has to be something discordant between the guy who understands that, that manifesting the stuff in that way is um, like giving in to the weaker part of himself. I knew you were smart. This was going to be a good interview, but I love it. Keep going. <laughs> no, but so the guy who is, is, is able to sort of recognize it but then gives into it, and then you do all this good stuff, and I watched you. I, I will just say I've watched you in tournaments. I've watched you in the poker world when that thing is churning, and it is almost like you're allowing a part of yourself. I don't know if it's your it, – you're allowing a part of yourself to surface that you just keep tamped down the rest of the time. And, and then in the real world, it seems like you're allowing this warmth to surface and this, this desire and ability to connect with people that you shut down. It, you know, I've really – this desire to connect with people has just hit a new high at the World Series this year when I just really strove for positivity and I just found so many interesting players at the table. I mean, man, the poker world's great. You know, you have club owners from obscure countries and you know, yes. uh, plumbers from Iowa and it's just terrific to connect with all of these people. They're all so interesting and fun. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think the poker world knows who I am. The poker world respects the fact that, you know, I'm a family man, never cheated my wife in right. 25 years. They've been on the road with me. They've seen all these opportunities. Uh, well, when I introduced, so the thing I said in introducing you, and I'll say it again, is that you are known, I, I would say, is, look, some of those people in the poker world might say they don't, you know, uh, various things about sort of like uh, the personality you employ when you play poker. Yeah, I mean, they certainly would accuse me of being the poker brat, but 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 away from the table, they would say you're honor. They would all say you're an honorable person. They'd I all they'd all rave it. about how honorable I'd be. They'd all rave about you know how how authentic I am, how I never cheat on my wife, how you know how I raise a lot of money for charity, and how I'm really fun to hang out with. Nobody's ever said you're an angle shooter, right? And but yet, I mean, I was going to jump into this later, but we're here. You, yet. Uh, Yet you have to feel sometimes the resentment that they still have for your position in the game. The resentment is lessened and lessened. I think that there were a lot of players that would cut me down at the knees to stand on my shoulders because I was getting too much attention. Yeah. You know, I mean, even, you know, in I think 2007, I won a bracelet and then I didn't in 08, 09, 010. And I was still seemed like the focus of the media poker world. And so I was getting all this attention and I think there was a lot of jealousy and, oh, he's no good anymore is is the way they handled it. And then in 2010, um, I mounted a big comeback and in 2011, 
Uh, three so seconds and second player of the year, and I kind of made all these guys eat all their words. And in 2012, I won two bracelets. And uh, so it was kind of nice to kind of say, uh, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, have success and prove the haters wrong. But yeah, how much are you still fueled by the, like, the desire to prove people wrong? I mean, I, I, I look back at video of myself in 08, 09, 010 because it hits ESPN at various times. Yeah. And, and, and I see how or I'll watch the high stakes poker shows or poker after dark, all these different shows that I was on. And I – I look at myself and I'm, man, why are you so defensive? You know, I'm yeah. like mad at myself. I'm looking. I'm like, why are you so defensive? You've won all. You have all the titles and people right. are trying to wind you up and you're falling right into their trap. And so, you know, and I think the defensiveness in those years uh, was, you know, that there was some truth in the fact that I hadn't won. And so I should never have been that defensive. I, I kind of fell into their trap. And, uh, you know, hopefully it's something that I'm over. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, part of what drives someone yeah. is, you know, uh, I want to be the greatest poker player of all time, you know, and I've said this since 1993, 94. And the only way to prove it in our game is to not win all the money. Everybody's like, oh, you win all the money. Well, there's a lot to that. You know, some guys have a piece of a company and make 50 million and they make another 10 million playing poker. Well, what if the company wasn't there? What if their piece – how many people truly started from rags to riches? I started with no money right. in this game. But – and then a lot of a lot of the poker players make uh, a lot of money uh, through endorsements. I've been very lucky that way. Sure. Wait. So do you – are the peers – are the people that you consider really your peers the ones who came of age at a time when nobody was staking anybody? I mean guys would get stuck so someone would stake them for short term. You know, But – are your peers really the people like you, Ivy, whoever the other people were who uh, did this without getting staked, showed up, started playing in like the uh, you know San Francisco or L.A. casinos, and built a bankroll and went and lost and won and like on their own um, yes. as individuals? That's yes. who you respect. I respect that because, and I respect some of the people that came in from money because they did it through inspiration. And a lot of us in the poker world did it through desperation. Right, but we I think your, 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 your sympathies lie more with the desperation people, right? <laughs> I mean, no, because you even said – like, I, uh, Well, no, I mean I think where I was going with that yeah. is just simply the only way to measure poker greatness is by bracelets won or tournaments won. It's the only place everybody starts from a level playing field. And everybody's like, oh, these high rollers should be important. No, they shouldn't because you know they, they have an importance for sure. But I think that you know you're playing hundred thousand dollar buying high rollers, million buying high rollers. You're shutting out a lot of great players that just haven't made the money but have the skills. And so you know, to me, the only way to measure who the greatest poker players are are to look at World Series of poker tournaments where all the great players show up, and that's where you make your bones or don't make your bones. Well, but what about the argument that some of the great cash game players would make, which is but the, the 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 real place that uh, poker greatness is forged is in the place uh, where the pressure is the, the 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 pressure is enormous because you're at a, a money level that doesn't feel comfortable or that you know that you're playing with real money that there's no safety net and that yeah, but they, Brian, you're four, so I, what, where what you, is that? Where is it? I mean, if you, if you have if you have people that play two thousand, four thousand regularly, and they have four million in their account, they never feel that pressure. Right. Okay, fair. So, 
Right, but the, but the poker player who shows up in that game a little bit short-stacked and, uh, you know, or has the... Now, that's pressure. Now, that's stupidity, but that's pressure. You yes. know, if you have, like, 100,000 to your name, and a lot of guys have done this throughout history, yes. they'll sit down in that 2,000, 4,000 game, and, you know, one bad run of cards, and they're broke. And you know what? That's ugly, because now they have to borrow money, they have to start over, they have to start playing 8160. Can you imagine going from 2,000, 4,000 to 8160? I mean, so many players have done that. So... So yeah, all right. I mean, if you want to talk about a lot of pressure, I mean, but there so was... you think it's BS? But you think it's BS when they say because you've heard. I mean, you, I know even just by you saying it, you know that people the the only way that people because you are the most winning World Series of poker player of all time. You know, someone can make the argument that Stewie or Johnny because of the way they won the main event. Um, they're your they they are your peers, but you won more bracelets than anybody else. But the way guys would knock you in the poker thing, the one thing they would say is, well, but. Is he a great cash game player? And your well, argument to them is, well, here's the place that we can all meet. Uh, these tournaments, go ahead and beat me in a tournament if you're saying that, that that's... Um, yeah, I haven't taken too much cash game criticism in the last couple of years. Because everybody sure. knows that I play, you know, 4800 regularly at the Aria Hotel or wherever. Yes. You know, I'm not afraid to sit down in the mixed games. I've crushed people in the mixed games. I'm comfortable in the mixed games. And the No Limit Hold'em cash games, you look at Poker Night in America, uh, which which is the latest show we've been filming. I'm, I think I'm the biggest winner, or one of them, playing No Limit Hold'em. So... I think that you know people right. kind of know that it, it was one more way for them to chop me down at the knees. Phil yeah. hasn't won enough in the cash games, you yeah. know. And at that point, I wasn't playing the cash games as often, and uh, you know, I was trying to make family my number one priority, my wife and kids. I figured I'd always have enough money, and then, but I had to go out and make history. Now it really hurt me in the tournaments. What I didn't know is in two thousand, you know, four, two thousand five, two thousand six, when I wasn't playing in these mixed game cash games, yeah. I didn't realize how much it was hurting me in tournaments. I thought it was helping me because I thought you're gonna face the great players in the mixed games and then you're gonna face the public in the tournaments. And so, you know, and so I always thought that they'd have strong the public had stronger hands than they had. Because but they're actually just weaker giving, players. They're, they're playing weaker hands. Credit. My mistake was that that, that, you know, in just playing even 10 hours of cash games, mixed games, or even 20 or 30 hours before the World Series of Poker would help me a ton. I didn't realize that in 2000. And a mixed game, it's like uh, Hold'em, Omaha, Pot yeah. Limit. You know, the, you play Omaha, Stud, Aider, Batter, Omaha, Aider, Batter, all these games which I'm trying to win bracelets in. In 2010, I just worked really hard on all my mixed games, and the right. results were immediate. It's like I remembered all the stuff I'd forgotten. And so, you know, I was trying to make my life more about um, I make my history at the World Series of Poker and I'll make my money off the table and then I can still be married happily and have kids. And, you know, I mean, uh, and that, and my wife would say that's a good decision. We've been married almost 25 years. Well, yeah, years. no, and I think people it, – it's a, it's a very impressive thing and it's a, like a beautiful thing that you have that, you know, a lot of the guys and, and women who came up around when you did in poker um, – really found some sense of community with one another. And even when the poker world, uh, when, you know, when the online thing happened, these factions, uh, you could tell, hey, Jen Harmon and Daniel are close and they're going to go do this thing. And these people are close and they're going to go launch full tilt. And then you did your own, th you did your own thing. Was, was it a strategy for you that you were going to be you know, friendly enough with these people but be like a lone wolf? Or was it that your priorities were different? Did you feel like, you know, uh, 
you had to, in a sense, keep some of them at arm's length. Like how? Why did that break down in, or not break out that way? A great question because there was there was a lot of factions in poker at that time. I walked between all the factions, got along with everybody. Everybody respected me. I got along well with everybody, and so that was easy. But I think that. Um, you know, and by the way, I was you know getting ready to sign a very big contract about a week after Black Friday. I was right. going to sign like a decamillion-dollar contract um, that we'd been working on for months, and uh, with a new site, as so I was going to be very close with one of those factions. <laughs> now Black Friday came along, and that twenty million or whatever just disappeared, <laughs> and a lot of poker players took a hit. A lot of people were you know being paid a lot of money by the sites and. Um, and that hurt. That hurt all of us. I think for me it was also a wake-up call that, you know what, the money's not just flowing in anymore. Sure. You're going to have to go out there and play better. But, but the question you know? is just as a competitor, you know, uh, you don't – That's a well, okay. You really see Jordan or Kobe yep. doing like, – you would right. see all these people hanging out together and playing in games together and like joining forces to take somebody on and you were never a part of that stuff. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. It did seem like I was a lone wolf. But the fact is I got along with everybody well. I just think that my priorities were different. My, my wife was number one and my kids and then winning tournaments. So if I was out of a tournament um, at the World Series of Poker, I mean when I'm at the World Series of Poker, I just – every minute is playing and then sleeping. And that's and, and my wife's around too, and so I'm trying to get make sure that you know get some time with her. She's very supportive during that period. Moves into the aria with me, and you know for six weeks or seven weeks, and and so yeah, it, it seemed like I wasn't a part of some of those groups because um, if I busted out of a tournament at eight o'clock at night rather than go to dinner with everybody, I thought that it would take a big energy sure. toll. I thought if I go to dinner uh, with everybody, I'm going to have to do a lot of talking. I'm going to get engaged. My voice is going to get even sore. I talked a lot during the day. And so it was all about conserving energy. Um, but off times it's different. I just came back from uh, Melbourne and the World Series of Poker APAC, you know, where they gave away uh, – they didn't give it away. You had to earn them. But they gave away 10 bracelets. And uh, I did the same thing as I usually did. I, I was just doing a ton of sleeping, trying to adjust for my schedule. And then late in the tournament when I had a little bit more – uh, free time. I went out to dinner with Daniel Negreanu and Antonio Esfandiari, you know, uh, and just kind of like made sure. And we really developed a solid relationship. I'd never been super solid with those guys, but I'd right. never not been. Daniel no, and I have hung I'm, around for but years. That's what I'm saying. Like, yes, I. So that's great. That feels to me like a different kind of this real decision you made. Yeah. That you could somehow do it and it wouldn't hurt your desire to like. Because I I hear what you're saying that you're always good with them, and I know that's true. I've seen you with all those, but. My read from the slightly from the outside, but you know I have this unique position in the world of poker, which is I'm not in it, but everybody talks to me, and yeah. I know what's going on. I always viewed it like um, because you're you approached this, it seems differently than most of the other poker players. It's war to you, it seems like. I mean, I, if I, I've talked to uh, you know I MC Tiger Woods event uh, every year, and and I asked him, I said, hey, listen, you know. Um, I would think that the best form of practice for you, and we talked about how we both lose it a little bit. I mean, he'll throw a yeah. golf club. You hear him swearing a lot, knocking the club down and saying F, you know, or whatever. And he loses it just for a moment or two and recovers quickly. And he told me that, um, I said, listen, why don't you play the guys 500 a hole or whatever? Because that, to me, is the intensity of tournament coverage. Yeah. I asked Corey Pavin the same question I caddied for him once. I love Corey. I'm a golf freak too. So yeah, I'm, I'm And Tiger said, "Listen, I don't want any of these guys to know that they can beat me." 
So he doesn't want to play 500 a hole and have them beat him even once where they feel like, you know. Yeah, and so you didn't want to make yourself vulnerable. And so I don't know if it's exactly the same thing. I didn't have a – it wasn't an intentional sort of thing um, really. I don't think it was intentional because, I mean, I think when you're talking about non-tournament times, I would go out to dinner with a lot of the guys and hang out. But during tournament times, it just seems like – but I just wasn't in Vegas that often. It wasn't until we started filming TV shows that I had a lot more time to socially reasons hang out. Reasons to then be with people. But it would be like – for me, it was weird because I'd say no to so many dinners. People asked me to dinner. They'd see I was getting along with them, having fun, and I kept saying no and I just – my reasoning was, all right, well, I have to film tomorrow all day and I just want to rest. So it was but always about Do you think there were rest. consequences to that? Well, I, I feel like the consequences – no, as far as my reputation goes, no. As far as you know, making history goes, no. It probably helped me. But I think that I think that I lost something there. There's a social aspect of uh, – you know, and so it's been nice – um, I, I don't think it's going to be that way again for me. Well, yeah, that's I'm having I, a, just I, I'm enjoying people too much. Well, that's what I noticed last night that it seemed like uh, it seemed like you were so into giving to people like great moments. Yeah. And sharing for them. And that felt to me like a real transition where you got you know, outside Brian, of yourself. <laughs> so, you know, Brian, if you think about it, um, you know, uh, I'm under siege. Uh, for autographs everywhere I go. I mean, I walk through the streets of New York. Fiddle, 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 fiddle. You just, I get all that stuff because we've been on TV so much and all these different countries too. I'm in the middle of London and in London, they just, they love to leave you alone to make sure you're not important. But then the transition <laughs> happened a couple years ago where they started coming up to me in the streets of London all the time. Pictures, right. autographs, you know, sorry to bother you. And so it's a very unnatural state. And so I've, you know, what I've discovered in my own research is about 98% of the celebrities can't handle it. They just can't handle it and you just see them melting down, freaking out, losing it all the time because it's so unnatural to be the center of attention to people stare at you all the time. Sure. You know, I'm at a restaurant in New York and all these waiters are congregating <laughs> right in front of me and they're all pointing at me and pointing at me and, you know, and my parents don't notice and my wife doesn't notice and I'm just like, this is just weird, you know, but but okay, just, just stare forward and eat your meal, you know. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? And so it's – I think that adds up a little bit. And then I think, and I think in the poker world, um, you know, when I walk through the halls of the World Series sure. of Poker, it's, it gets a little crazy. And so, I've decided two things: one, if you're going to be rich and famous, shut up and sign the damn autographs. Right. And so I'll do that. I'll sign the autographs. I'll take all the pictures. It's important. And when people come up to you and they say, "You're who I aspire to be," and all this stuff, if you take it all in, you know, if you raise your head up too much, then your ego gets has takes over, and that's bad. And so it's a hard thing to handle. And then so sometimes you choose the solace of the room, you know. Yeah. And uh, and now I've just decided that you know I mean I, I, I'm missing too much social stuff. It's just so it's might as too well much do it. fun. So what's the process by which you think this stuff through? Like, do you journal? Do you talk to people? How do you how do you sort of say okay, let me look at where I am and then make adjustments? What because obviously you're somebody who thinks a lot, game you know thinks yeah. a lot about. All of these moves in various ways. So, so what's the process of looking in inside and fixing leaks in life? And all that? yeah, I mean that's that's a constant thing for me since I was 20 years old. All I've been do is I've been trained to look at new games. When I was a kid, yeah, okay, I'm the oldest of five, 
My parents are right here in the studio, actually. I'm the oldest of five, and you know, my father has a PhD, right, he's a JD, professor. Yeah. MBA, right. And so, like all the letters you can imagine. And so, I was the oldest of five, and so the pressure was on me to get good grades. I didn't. The pressure was on me to continue in college. I didn't. And so. What I did to compensate when I was eight years old, nine years old, ten years old, I wasn't playing instruments. I wasn't, you know, getting great grades for for ADD reasons. Probably not for intelligence reasons. People could argue that. <laughs> and uh, and so was what it happened diagnosed? Is, was ADHD diagnosed? Then? No, back then, no, no, because I'm I I have ADHD too for sure, yeah. and I. Uh, I've never talked about it on here, but I definitely was undiagnosed for until sure. I was a grown-up when I realized what was going what right. was going on, and I did. It was a huge moment for me to know. So, right? Yeah, you think that was what was happening? Well, here? then I think so. What happened is I had to win at every game because yeah. what else did mm-hmm. I have? And so I would play you Scrabble against my brothers and sisters, and I was the oldest. So I so. All I did is learn perfect Monopoly strategy, perfect Scrabble strategy, perfect strategy for every single game, hearts, clubs, spades, anything we played, poker. I had to be the best. I had to beat all of my brothers and sisters. And if I didn't, I'd have my – that's where my poker brat meltdowns came from because then what did I have left? I didn't have my parents' respect for the grades. I didn't have my parents' respect for playing instruments, you know, and I didn't have, you know, the respect for, you know, being great in sports like some of my other brothers and sisters. So what was left for me? You know, was I had to at least win at the games that we played. And so then I would melt down a little bit like, oh, my God, I played that backgammon perfectly. You had to roll double sixes to beat me twice in a row. And that's how the meltdown started. And so what that translated to nowadays is my whole life when I look at games, I break them apart. What's the best optimal strategy here? What's the best optimal strategy there? That's where it came from. And do you do that in like to yourself in life as well? Like when you say I decided I shouldn't be in the room, like mm-hmm. uh, you know, most people, most people, uh, very often, all of us, I think, go through some parts of our lives where we're kind of sleepwalking and not analyzing, not trying to figure out how do I make this a more optimal time? How do I make the? So do you actually stop and go, okay? Uh, the last two weeks, I haven't been happy for some reason. Let me figure that out and figure out how to go forward. Absolutely. And my wife, you know, being a you know a, a psychiatrist, um, we do therapy together, and I just keep growing and growing. And she's like, "All right, I don't like this. I don't like that." Boom, boom, boom. But I'm in there to learn. I'm in there to grow because when That's I'm awesome. growing in therapy with my wife and my primary relationship, it makes all my relationships better. Number one. Number two, it makes me a better poker player. It's like I'm more observant. And so I'm all for that. I love it. I just want to just continue to be a better and better and better human, smarter, wiser, more understanding. And uh, it translates well to all of the games I play. Sure. And, and then when you're – the thing I always see when you're – when you talk about these moments when you uh, blow up because you're so angry, um, somebody who's pursued these things and who's made himself so good and has – I'm really interested in, in your kind of method of pursuit in terms of figuring out optimal strategy because especially at some of these games, I'm sure what was considered the optimal state-of-the-art strategy at some point you realized wasn't and – I'm wondering what those moments feel like to you. Well, I think, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Some people, um, you know, I think a lot of people would give me credit for kind of inventing the concept of small ball. I started playing in the 80s and I was like, wow, they're doing it wrong. Everybody's wrong. I'm just going to do it this way. And I started winning all these tournaments, you know. I mean, well, Doyle would talk about playing the small, you know, going in with small suited connectors and things. But then he would still be and trapping and and going in big. But you're saying you talked instead of the. Um, having to explain small ball instead of having to be aggressive 
on the flop. What I Whereas would say Doyle is, would fake would raise with things that weren't raising. He was all about aggression. And your thing was, I'll outplay you. on Doyle the- might have like a hundred thousand chips and then move all in with a flush draw on a straight draw. Right. You know, and perfectly valid strategy. But I thought, you know what? If I can somehow check and get a free card, I might hit that flusher straight. And now I can get the money in there risk free with the best hand, you know, and it gives me more lives. I was all about more lives, you know, lasting longer, playing smaller. Like Moneyball almost. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like almost the idea of um, looking at a certain inefficiency that existed in the way that the conventional wisdom said the thing should happen. And then you going, well, if everyone's leaning this way, I'm going to lean this other way. Exactly. And, and, and I guess what, what the guys who played the way Doyle played then and that first big wave of, of how all the top players were, were playing, the idea was that if you did just check along, you know, there was a weakness and it would become predictable. So were you conscious of avoiding that? Of I would make these small bets, and that's you know that's what small ball, small bets. So I mean, say there's ten thousand in the pot, I might bet a thousand, and they'd be like, "What the heck? No one's ever bet a thousand into a ten thousand dollar pot," you know? <laughs> and they just didn't know what to do, and so I'd do it, and then they'd raise me a couple of times, and I'd be like, "Okay, the next time you bet a thousand, you're gonna have it," and when they raise you, you're gonna smoke them. And so I'd wait, and then I'd bet a thousand, and they'd go ahead and try to raise me because it worked the last three times, and boom. I just kind of close the, uh, you know. Yeah, you would ta- you would move all in. Yep, and I just win a big pot, you know. Um, and was this tournament play mostly, or was this tournaments, any- cash games? All it all seemed to work. And then and then you know as people you know started to play a little bit more like me. Once once you see someone winning ev- everything, you're like, all right, well that must be a better way to play. People adjusted to that, and you know I think that there's a constant state of adjustment in poker. I think 2012 was a great year for me because. Uh, all the kids were making exact min raises. They still do that a lot. Yeah, um, they'd make exact min raises, and I could, you know, and because they're raising really small, I could take some flops. I could put in a small amount of money to win a huge amount of money, and uh, right. and I just started wrecking it. I just started. They would open say they would open for four thousand. You know, yeah. say the blinds are one thousand, two thousand. They'd open for four thousand. That's what we mean by minimum raise. Yeah. I might just instead come of in, instead of opening for the pot, instead of opening for what the pot's yeah. going to be, they'll open for. And I might just start coming in for eight thousand. Right. And they'd be like, "What the heck? We don't know what to do. We haven't analyzed this. We haven't strategized for this." Or they might open for four thousand, and I just look at them and think, "All right, they're weak." I don't care what the math says. I have nine deuce offsuit. 99% of the people fold it, but I didn't even look at my cards yet. They're weak and I'm raising it. Not only am I going to raise it, I'm not going to raise it the amount that they would suggest you raise it, which is another 4000 or six. I'm going to call their 4000 I'm going to raise 10000 more. Now I know if they are weak, they're forced to fold. And so I would accumulate a lot of chips just through my reading abilities. And then occasionally, you know, you have a really, really, really strong hand and you can read the other player as having the perfect hand and you can make an amazing fold. And those are the ones people talk about on television because they see those. It's so hard to discipline yourself to fold. I mean, in the charity tournament last night, uh, I had ace-jack. The flop came ace-jack uh, 10 and... Uh, Vanessa Selfs was to my right, who's my good buddy. And, uh, you know, she bet. I bet on the flop. She she made a big bet at me. Um, I knew she had king-queen. I knew she had king-queen. I was certain of it. 
And uh, I still couldn't get. I, it was so. Hard, it was impossible to get off the. Get so like hard to fold. Pot. And that's the thing. You could throw that hand away, knowing that it's an infinite game. Occasionally, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a particularly rough situation because it was Vanessa. In that case, I'm I'm going to say I think you have king queen, but I'm putting it in because it's Vanessa. But I mean, <laughs> she's earned that kind of action. Vanessa Subs is an amazingly great, incredible player. poker player. Yeah, absolutely. She had it though, and um, but yeah, yeah. I, the discipline to lay down some hands. It's just like it takes a lifetime worth of reads and trusting those reads. But, but I, yeah, it's it, folding two kings before the flop. But the work that goes into this, the the question you tell that story, and and it's easy to hear it on one level but on the other level we're going to lose the, some um, of the audience with these the stories. amount no because i'm gonna it's a person no it's a personal thing which is as successful as you are many people who've reached your your you know you became a superstar at, at 24 years old you were the first modern famous poker player you were the most famous pr- poker player or second most famous poker player the entire time you've been doing this you've been either the most famous or the second most famous poker player for the entire time since 1989. Uh, and you've made a lot of money and you have this life and you could p- get appearances, you could play poker as much as you want. The winning almost doesn't matter in terms of your quality of life, I would, I would bet. Uh, what is it that, 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 you know, poker, there's a huge shift that happened in terms of the way people broke down game theory and the way they started talking about optimal play and the way that they started talking about um, how to measure range of hands. Things- Listen, Brian, imagine this. You have 100 million poker players come into the game. They're young. They're smart. They're in college. Their minds are elastic. And they yes. take the game apart. Bing, bang, boom. This is right. This is wrong. This is right. This is wrong. And they've come such a long ways to conquering the game mathematically. But here's the thing. Poker's not just math. Right. And that's why... Daniel Negreanu and I and Phil Ivey have survived an onslaught and managed to stay at the top of 20 million new players in our game. But one thing that Daniel clearly did this last year from a lot of people have talked about it, and I'm dying to ask him about it in person when he's in New York, but he got a couple of the young guys to talk to him. And to walk that didn't through help. all that he, strategy. No, no, no. But he did spend a lot of time brainstorming with. Uh, so, what did you? This, it's, this is about you. You can talk about. Please, Daniel. You don't think? No, that no. I'm willing today? to address that. I'm Go willing ahead, to. Please address. Here's it. the thing. Daniel started believing in all the math and the game theory in 07, 08, 09, 10, All those years, he didn't really do that well, you know. And he'd be like, "Phil, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong." I'm like, Daniel. You're a great poker player, you know. I mean, it's going to show, but I mean, you know, he, you know, wrote uh, 100 negative blogs about the way I was playing poker, which is fair. You know, I love Daniel. I don't have any issues with him. He, he never attacked me personally. He just said, all right, Phil's just not that good at poker. I'm going to – you know what I mean? He's not using the mathematically correct ways. Well, Daniel didn't win two bracelets. Daniel hasn't had this amazing run that he's had, two bracelets in 2013 and a bunch of final tables. He did it by his reading abilities. You know, so he finally understood, you know what, these kids have a great math. Uh, they've, they've, but I learned all of their math stuff in four days, right. you know. And, uh, and so, you but, know. But didn't you have to go in there? That's what I'm saying. In order for you to even Daniel, know how they did it, didn't you take the time or did you to actually – understand the way these guys were thinking it t- about it. it t- but listen, when you look at their, th- it takes it takes two hours to read all their theories. 
They're doing this, 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 this. It's all right, black and white in front of you. It's like it's just not. It's not rocket science. They're going to re-raise when they have this range. They're going to re-raise with that range. You look at it and you're like, wow, that makes sense. That's cool. How can I use it against them? But when they talk about if they're all going to drone it, right. how do I beat all the drones? That's what I'm and when everybody's droning it wrong, that's where I crush it. And everybody's droning it wrong in 2012, 2013, and that's why I started winning a bunch. That's why Daniel won a bunch. You know, he won two big no limit tournaments. No, of course he did. And this year, you know, he obviously had an incredible he had an incredible year. Um, and though I my my sense of it is, I'm sure that that's true that he he dove into that math and then kind of came out of it. But maybe what what finally happened is he was able to synthesize. All of that new, maybe for you it took two hours, maybe it took him a little longer to synthesize all that stuff and then use what he knew. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I too looked at, you know, I mean, I, I had so much criticism that I made a mistake. I looked and I started to try to play like they played. Ah. And it cost me a couple of years of bracelets is what it did. And then finally I'm like, uh, Phil, you know what you're doing. Um, you know what I mean? This is this is you know they think you play a short stack that way they proved it mathematically but you know what you have nuances that don't make sense to them you know and so I would oftentimes someone would move all in in a situation where I in the small blind and I'm yeah. in the big blind with ace ten and I know that every player on the planet would instantly call but I say ah, what's the harm in spending one minute talking to the guy. And all of a sudden, I'd get a clear read. He is exactly ace-queen. He is exactly ace-queen. He is exactly ace-queen. I would fold this hand, whereas 99% of the people wouldn't fold it. And then and, in a particular case where I did exactly that, I was rewarded uh, about four rounds later when I picked up aces and the guy moved in on me with ace-three offsuit. You know, So instead of getting my money in bad and going broke, right. I ended up with the chip lead. You know, I ended up winning a couple. But pots. so for a minute, you bought into this idea. There is this optimal strategy. You everyone, you have to play this way. This is where the game has moved to. And you actually uh, thought, was it, you think it was like a fear of, hey, I'm getting older. These kids are young and smart. I better latch on to this because I don't want to be like the old guys when I came into the game. I'm going to synthesize some of this interview. Check this out. When you keep your head up, looking around, listen to people tell you you're great, signing autographs. And then, and then hearing the criticism when things are going badly and then changing your game, that's a bad place to be. Keep your head down. So hard to do. I've spent like years trying to deal with my ego at age 24 through 30. I was really bad at dealing with it, but I kept trying. You know, I kept trying to improve. My wife's been with me for a long time. She's helped me. And, you know, and it just it's just inevitable sometimes when you go ahead and you just crush it for a year or two that you start to feel pretty good about yourself. Now, I've gotten a lot better keeping my head down. But when you keep your head up and you start listening to all the external stuff, you're great, you're great, you're great, you're great, you're great. You hear that from 100 times a day. You know, yeah, but first, it's going to mess you up. But, and when they, and when they say – and then it even hurts more if you're listening to that BS when they say you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. You know, which they said to me too for a while. That really hurts. And so, you know, I was just better off just keeping my head down and just playing my own game. And but of course, understanding exactly what they do. So, you know, anytime I hear new math theories or I talk to the kids about how to play heads up or whatever, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying every kid is a drone. There's some brilliant, talented young poker players that have risen to the top of this game. But, but. You know, I think that the greatest poker players 10 years from now are the ones who are going to have the greatest reading abilities. Another interesting confluence, if you're interested in hearing about this, is very interesting. 
it's you had all of it. Yeah, all these math guys camp come into the game, right? And all these guys from the internet come into the game. And the way we were progressing in the poker world in the '90s was that the people who were great at reading people were climbing to the top, and then all of a sudden, boom! Right around 2003, 2004, the math guys rose to the top instead. Great for me. Because I have the reading abilities and their math is fairly easy for me to understand. Right. And so that really kind of gave me a break um, because not everybody that had great uh, reading abilities could hang because with the math Because what the math, math does, just to explain it, is it gives new insights. When, when it's not just, oh, they understand. You're not talking about the odds of hitting off. The math of the game is the math of the game. When pot odds versus the possibility, uh, probability of a hand falling. But – what they're talking about is uh, understanding through game theory, through the math of game theory, new insights into what the um, optimal, optimal plays are Amazing. in varying situations that lead to the probability over a very long term of a greater reward. Amazing mathematical theories dissecting our game that all work so well when you're playing exactly on the internet. But then – the real world's different because poker is not um, it's not purely math. Poker's art, you know, and that the art of being great at reading people is that's how I've made my living. And you know, I would say that you know Daniel's very solid mathematically, but he uh, you know what sets him apart is his reading ability. I used to make fun of him. You know, and say, "Hey, Daniel," uh, you know, he would say, "I know you have seven eight. I know you have seven eight. I know you have seven eight. I call anyway, and the guy would flip over seven eight, and I'm like, Daniel, you just wasted ninety thousand dollars on a call when you knew he had seven eight. Daniel had that reading ability, and he just stopped making those calls. He's like, I know you have seven eight, I know you have seven eight, and well, now he folds, and all of a sudden, boom, he's you know. Well, yeah, I want to say one top. thing. The one of the two scenes people sometimes pick on in in rounders is you know the scene when when Mike reads the poker player's hands at the table, but I've seen you do it, uh, and. And it is true that at the top level, you guys can sometimes do it, especially with amateur poker players. I was playing in a game um, on Monday night in, in Manhattan, and uh, and I'd, I was having a good time, really enjoying all the people. And finally a hand came up where a 9 and a 10 and a deuce were on the board, and I had a 9-8. And I said to the guy, I said, you have exactly ace-queen after he check-raised me. You have exactly ace-queen. And, uh, you know, and... When you bet big on the river, I'm going to call you. A turn card had come off. Now, the river was a nine, so it was going to be an easier yeah, call. But he good, gave up, yeah, right? and he was like – you could see him shaking a little bit. And then he whispered it. to me and he said, I had exactly ace-queen. And I was like, wow, that was cool. And when I'm on like that, certain things add up to where – it makes sense that people have hands. I've seen it so many times, and I recognize it's like pattern recognition with, you know. Well, it's like you don't have to think about the ranges because based on their particular pass, it sort of just happens to you now instinctively. Yeah, the guy could have had ace-jack, you know. He could have had a lot of hands, but, but I guessed exactly ace-queen. And also by saying ace-queen, you're going to gain information by his reaction. So it's a win for you whether he has it or he doesn't have it. But it, it was cool that he happened to have exactly that. So that's, sure. that's one of the things that, you know, that's one of the things that I've been lucky to have. So a couple of things occur to me from just patterns of uh, people, uh, although I'm not the poker player you are, but in, in this kind of thing. One is, you know, when you're yelling at the person at the table, it, the thing that, about you having ADD when you were young and having a, one thing that happens to people with ADD is there's this incredible... Um, dissonance sometimes, especially bright people, which is that 
so many of the outer manifestations in your schoolwork and in your life um, result in people asking you why you can't live up to this thing that you should be. And the maddening part is that half of you knows you're that smart, but half of you is convinced they're actually wrong, right? I agree. Yeah, you're smiling big. And so when you uh, – that thing which leads to you having to then prove not to them really but to yourself your worth is like an incredible driver, isn't it? It's a huge driver and you know I have some uh, some really wealthy – Amazing friends in Silicon Valley that you know had had really tough times with their parents, and that drove them as well. Uh, there's something there's something there about not being happy when you're younger, that is a real driving force, I think, to prove to people that I am somebody, I am something, and you work extra hard to get there. Yeah, to use everything that you have to be great, because in, if if they're if you know if the dark voice is right, it's kind of you feel worthless. Right. And so to me, it's like I don't know, you know, uh, where you are in a a religious sense. And I mean, I'm I'm an atheist, but but I do know the feeling of uh, it's not the and and it's why I always cut you a huge break. You're not really yelling at the person. You're yelling at whatever your idea of like fate is. That's true. That's true. That's true. Most people. I mean, I like it when Phil Ivey, if I ever say something to him, he just he puts his hand in front of his mouth. He's laughing at me. Right. Because it's so absurd. And I like that because that's the response I deserve. Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, you want to bend the universe to your will. Right. And you feel like you've put the work in to bend the universe to your will. And when it doesn't cooperate, it's maddening. It's maddening when you play perfectly for so long and then just get really unlucky in some weird spot. And so and so in a spot where a guy wasn't supposed to play what he did play. And so most of the kids now have just, just laugh at me too, the Scott Seavers and the – Sean Debs and they're like, oh, it's just Phil, you know, and they'll just laugh at me. They're like, oh, Phil went off. Do you a little carry bit today. it? Do you carry the anger for a no. long time? No, no, no. I get rid of it almost instantly, and then it's done. Yeah, and then you can go right back to the game and be if you're still in, if you haven't, yes, uh, you know, if you haven't. <laughs> I mean, it might carry over for a couple of hands. I mean, at that point, I think people perceive that I'm tilting. So once I go off uh-huh. like that, and I'm like, how could you play that? Now, what were you thinking? You know, this cra- you know, this craziness that where I kind of lose it, John McEnroe like. Yeah. Um, I think at that point, it, it can be dangerous for me for a minute or two. And I've learned, you know, I've learned methods for dealing with that a long time ago. And that's just count down the exact number of chips you have. Sure. Tell, figure out what exactly the blinds and the annies are. And then once I've focused, like really it takes like 30 seconds to count your chips and figure out what the blinds and annies are and how many people are left. And you have to think of all these questions. All of a sudden I'm focused again because I've kind of forgotten right. what happened by then. And so that's that's The effective. process by just diving right back in. Yeah. But okay, I, I just have to say uh, the one thing that I, I think you, you're being really honest and I totally appreciate it and I know that people are going to see and, and be really interested in the way that you're talking about this. But the one thing I don't really believe is um, I don't really believe that when a peer like Daniel wrote those things that it didn't actually hurt you in some way. Of course it hurt. Yeah, because you said, oh, I didn't hold it against him. But I think it had to hurt because no. here's a guy who should know what it costs you emotionally to do this. I think it has to like – Well, of course it hurt. I mean Daniel's criticisms hurt. I didn't read many of them, but I would – but I would – I'd read one or two and then people would 
text me, oh, Daniel went off on you, or somebody else went off on you, or somebody. And I kept hearing that. I didn't really want people to tell me that. That's Of course. You know? And yeah, I didn't well, read just... most of them. Honestly, I didn't read probably 80% of the criticism as far as my play goes because it just doesn't help to read it. It's too painful. But just knowing it was out there, of course, it, it pained me. Right. And it I'm hurt. Saying, isn't it another thing that you – because one of the things Tiger always would do is – you know, a guy would say something bad about Tiger and he would find a way to go and then crush that guy in the match. You know, the guy in the match play – he then went back and beat the guy like six and five or something. He just destroyed him when the, the guy was like, I'm not scared to play Tiger. So I, I have to think. Now, that- Daniel's not at my table that often, but I guarantee you this. After after what he did, I was always ready to not make a single mistake against him. I'll tell you that. Right. You wanted to go and yeah. crush at the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the million-dollar buy-in, uh, he beat me, you know, 15 hands in a row and I was really getting furious and then but boom the 16th hand I got lucky and got all my chips back and then it was going to be my turn you know <laughs> so you know it's a rivalry it's healthy I'll, I'll still you know I, I went out you know to dinner with Daniel three times in Melbourne and to a club and it doesn't mean we can't get along off the table but yeah if someone says something negative about me I do remember it and I do not play and I do not miss a trick against that player. No, it's fuel to keep you fired up and going. I do want to go backwards a little bit so that for people who don't know, which is that when, when, when you were young and, and you made yourself good at all these games, uh, did, did the thought of did, – did, when you started playing poker, did it feel different to you than these other things? Did you love it more immediately? Did it make, did it like make sense to you in a different way? It made, poker made sense right away, yeah. yeah. I'm not saying I was a great player right away, but I think that I found a game when I was at the University of Wisconsin and, uh, you know, my grades were coming along. I was, you know, 2.8. I mean, that's not bad, you know, a little bit below B. For a guy with your IQ, though, that's horrendous. <laughs> not up to my parents' standards. I mean, even as you still said 2.8, I saw your parents flinch in the other room still. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So, you know, that... that that um, and then all of a sudden, I kind of found this poker game. Now I started playing at the Memorial Union, started winning uh, money, and uh, you know, twenty dollars here, thirty dollars there, you know. And then all of a sudden, I kind of graduated to the bigger game, and the bigger game had doctors, professors, lawyers, and twenty-year-old Phil. So yeah, this is. I mean, obviously, you know, the moment in your life that where where your whole future kind of opened up for you. For sure, was this the the when you were playing those games, was that the most alive that you would feel during the course of the day? Were you? I, I was taught, you know, I was taught the value of education by my dad with his PhD, MBA, JD, and so playing with a bunch of guys that had all those degrees at the poker table and being twenty, and the minimum age was thirty-eight, forty. So I was playing with a group of guys that were very successful, you know, very famous in their professions. And crushing them at the poker table, $100 buy-ins. I remember I won 3000 one day in that game. I mean, it's just a ginormous amount for a what college What did you do student. having that kind of money, man? What did you do? Like, did you know, okay, that has to be a bankroll? Were you reading about poker? Like, what? How Never did you... read anything about poker. Back then? I read something about bluffing 50% of the time makes sense or, you know, 75% of the time makes sense. That's about all I read. Never read a book. Uh, just developed my own theories communicated there's a guy named Tuli Harami who sadly has you know passed on but um, he you know was kind of my a little bit of my mentor for a month and then I kind of passed him you know I remember wow That's I remember he used to just routinely bust everybody right and so maybe for three or four months he was kind of was my he mentor. A teacher 
Uh, no, he was a just a super genius guy who, right. you know, I mean, he's a heck of a story if we could ever get into it. But um, he was banking the games, not taking a rake. I mean, he, he right. had, was independently wealthy. But I remember one day he just left all the chips in front of him. He was used to busting everybody all the time. So, you know, when everybody cashed out, he just put the chips in front of him. And so it was like $2,000. I noticed and then I busted him. And never again did he play me again. And this was early in our relationship. We talked a little bit about poker. And so right away when I was 21, I went to Vegas. And Vegas at that time was filled with hometown champions. Right. Great place to cut your teeth, you know. And so you went to Vegas and did you have this thought and even then, maybe I can do this for my life? Well, all right. I mean, there was a very key moment for me when I was 23 years old. You know, it was like April 1987. And uh, I was not a big drug guy, but I remember I smoked pot. I went to play poker at noon, and I was just burnt out. My bankroll was where? Where are you now? Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. My bankroll was like thirteen, fourteen thousand. I'm going to a game where I can win two or three hundred, you know. And so the motivation's not yeah, sure. huge. So I show up to the game, and and I'm you know trying to figure it out. If there's a golf course open, but there's snow on the ground, and I'll never. This was a very crystallizing moment in my life. Um, so. I smoked pot. I was, again, a never big, never right. really big into that and didn't smoke it for 25 years. But I went in there. We went into a bar and it's like two in the afternoon and we're having a drink and they're playing pool for $20 a game. And it was just this dark, dingy bar and uh, I had a drink and I'm like, this is just not the way I want to live my life, you know. And I remember huh. opening this door. And the, the, the sunlight was on the snow and just all this light hit me. And it was like, you know, a message from the universe that you're stuck in the dark. Wow. I hopped into a taxi. I went straight home and I wrote down exactly what I wanted to be in my life. If I was going to be a professional poker player, I wanted to be the best in the world. Um, and I just wrote down strategy after strategy as far as and and really goal life after strategy goal. or life poker strategy strategies. goal strategy. You know, I invented this poker pyramid that day. You know, and there's two poker pyramids. One is the one where people at the lower limits lose their money. They bring it to the higher limits. The winners not the winners bring it to the higher limits to the higher limits. So the top of the poker pyramid is where all the money is. So I realized that day that's where I had to be. Number two. Another pyramid that I constructed is, all right, you have to, you know, you're going to have to exercise. You're going to have to eat healthy. And each pyramid, you know, you're going to have to study the game. You're going to have to play a lot of hours. And so I kind of invented this pyramid where I put at the bottom the least important things and the top the most important things, money management being somewhere near the top. So I wrote out this great pyramid and I said, all right, this is it. Your life is not – you're going to become – you know, you're going to go out and you're going to become the best poker player in the world. And, you know, and considering, you know, that I was some 23-year-old with a $13,000 bankroll, um, I had a long ways to go. Did and, you tell uh, anybody? No. At the time, you didn't tell anyone. You wrote no. these things down. Mm-hmm. When you woke up the next day, pots out of your system, the whole no more THC, you looked at it. And did you meet it? Did you still feel like that's the truth? I've written the truth down? Yeah, absolutely. I knew at the time it was the truth. It was like a very, it was like just such a weird moment. It's like, it's like my eyes opened to the reality that I was in and the reality of where I could eventually become. And so this is a great scene from a book, 
you know, I'm writing, I'm writing my autobiography. I was say, I'm sure you've written this. I'm sure I've you've written, written this, this up story. in my autobiography. The autobiography hasn't come out yet. Uh, we haven't sold it yet. We've had offers, and it'll be easy to sell when of I want to sell it. But that's a that's a seminal moment that I talk about in the book. Well, of course, because you 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 wrote it out. You you it's kind of an incantation. Yeah. To your future. Yeah. And then as time passed, I came up with strategies like, you know, um, I'm going to write down all of my goals and and you know and and put them on the my bathroom mirror and then. I'm going to put all my blessings on the bathroom mirror. And so when I give motivational speeches, I talk about this. And so having my, you know, having my goals on one side of the mirror when I brush my teeth and having my, you know, it's gratitude and your your gratitude and your desires are are there together. Boom. So you, I want to leave focused but happy in the morning. And so, you know, doing that was very powerful. My mom was very behind me back in the dark 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 days when I was, you know, 17 years old and struggling with ADD and just struggling with life my mom always was like you're gonna be you're gonna kill it in life you're gonna just her constant positivity and belief in me you know even we went to a family therapist once and he started on me and my mom said um sir don't tell him that we're not coming back and i was like wow my mom just woo she just so some guy tried to tell me i couldn't be great and my mom said you're not going to tell my son that and we just left the therapist we never went back to that guy and uh, clearly, I was a bit of a handful for my parents. I had a mom like that, too. I got in trouble at school in horrible ways also. And my mom would say to them, you're wrong about my son. You know, and even though that doesn't always cure. I mean, the, the person can still he you know, you can't really block out the things you've heard. Right. But it helps a lot to have uh, that. Kind it does. Of you have support. to you have to you have to have some positivity to draw on. You have to have some positive experiences along the way. I've had a few other fortunate ones. Well, you know? so then when you went out, so that all happens. And did you and did you know that like John Wooden, the greatest coach ever had that pyramid of success? No. Have you read it ever? No. So, you know, John Wooden is greatest. Coach yeah, I know. Of all time. Sure. I know. Him. UCLA. He, he his whole he based his whole entire coaching method has to do with this pyramid of success i just thought you have i just see, thought pyramids are powerful and you know and, and uh, just, you you, know. Uh, you you have to find his it's incredible he's written books about it you know he did he, um it, i'm sure it's different stuff but he looked at the foundational stuff and then how it led up to these important top core value um and it's a great system to organize yourself so you did that you didn't tell anybody it was your powerful secret yeah yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've done a lot of the same stuff with the the way to put the goals or a daily reminder. I don't think I've ever talked about this here. Um, when I was trying to get a movie called Solitary Man made, and it was very hard solitary, to get made, I had Nike ID, you know, those sneakers, and uh, I had them write the word solitary on my shoes 200 times, and I wore those shoes every single day until I got the movie greenlit so that I would stare at the shoes no matter what. I'm looking at the word solitary. What can I do right now to make that movie happen? See, that's How can beautiful. I, what can I do to get the movie? Who can I talk to? How can I find an actor? And I, every day I was forced. And the first day that that movie happened, and I walked onto set wearing those shoes. You know, it was, like, it was a really unbelievably powerful thing. And I called it into being by doing that and then held myself to t- accountable. So you had this thing and you were like, I'm accountable to this. I'm going to become the best poker player in the world. When you went out there for the World Series and you were 24 and 89, did you think – was it the first time you played in the main event? 
for the second time. No, you know, I mean, some positivity stuff. Stuff would happen along the way, you know. I mean, should I go to the weird story about the famous psychic I met when I was 18? You, you, I mean, so uh, you can. I mean, you can say anything you want. <laughs> I know I got to get you out of for your dinner, but we have a few more minutes. So, yes. Uh, okay, forget that one. But that was a, just one of those great moments where she said I'd be, you know, uh, known throughout the world. Right. You know, and, uh, and that was a question I was going to ask you, too. And she read a bunch of other people's hands and didn't really say anything, you know, huge about it. So I was like, OK, that's OK. That's positivity. And then so, I mean, I think that um, by the time I was 24, I was just starting to win a lot of tournaments and make a lot of everyone kind of started to know who I was. Right. And in 1988, um, in August you know, we had a, a major. We had about four majors per year. Well, it was the Bicycle Club main event. Yeah. And, you know, I, f- I won it. I finished second in the event before over two days, which made me really tired. And I went for a run at four in the morning after I won it. And I hopped in the next day and took the chip lead and I won that. So now I'm all over the poker press, which was very limited at the time. <laughs> card Player Magazine. Yeah, right. Card Player. I think it was called Poker Player Magazine. Yeah. I still Linda have the Johnson. front cover. Like Linda Johnson was the They end. probably misspelled yeah. my name on the cover. That's funny. You know, Helmuth dominates and Helmuth and Seidel dominate because Eric finished second. Right. And then so going into that, there was a big article in Esquire Magazine about Chan. In April, Chan had said uh, Helmuth, once he – um, clears his head wow. once he figures out he's going to win the main event. And I read that, and I'm hearing that from Johnny Chan, who'd won it in 87, who'd won it in, in 88. 88. You know, once he gets his head straight, Phil Helmy is going to win it. And I'm reading this in Esquire magazine. We didn't get much press back then. Esquire magazine is, whoa, it's huge, you know? It's a big deal. And so going in, I just started telling everybody, I'm going to win it. I'm going to win it this year. I'm going to win it. And, um, my answering machine message is you're talking to the 1989 world champion of poker, recorded a month, you know, before, yes. left it up, um, you know, uh, told my dad, uh, you know, fly out and watch this for your first poker tournament because I'm going to win it and just told everybody I was going to win it. The one thing I said is I won't even make a deal. I'll get heads up and I'm going to win all the money unless it's with Johnny Chan. I kept saying that. Wow. Well, who would ever know 180 players? It comes down to Johnny Chan and I. Who would know that Johnny would get there the third year? And in he's a row. going for his third. third in a row. And I'm trying to be the youngest player ever to win it. And uh, I just remember when we got heads up, I leaned over and I said, You're going to have to play perfect and you're going to have to get lucky because I'm going to play perfect. And about 35 minutes later, um, I had the best hand, two nines, and yep. he had a seven of spades. And we put it all in. And, uh, and I won the main event. And. You know, my father had been out in Vegas about five days and he's running up the aisle, you know, and, you know, I almost had tears in my eyes because the greatest moment of my life, my lifetime goal was to win the main event. And you did it at 24. I did it at 24 and my father was there running up and just him giving me a hug and this fledgling little network called ESPN was covering it, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I, I look back at that video once a year where I wanted my hands go up in the air like this. I'm, you know, I'm like doing the, you know, and I turn around. And I know why I'm turning. The people at home don't know why I'm turning because my dad's running up the aisle. And I remember they stopped him because there was, uh, you know, $1.2 million in cash. Table, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's my dad. Let him through. And I remember just, the, you know, one of the happiest moments of my life and looking over five minutes later and there's dad being interviewed by all this poker press. And I just kind of smiled, you know. 
Well, I mean, yeah, and, and incredible that that happened to you at such a young age and that you sort of lived this thing exactly as you, as you said. Did you know at that moment or anywhere near that, that time that you were going to become famous? And I know that psychic said it, but did you understand that the ways in which your life was going to change? Because Johnny wasn't famous. Right. Like Doyle was, Amaryllis Slim was famous. Doyle was famous. But they weren't famous the way that you became famous. But Slim had been on, you know, Johnny Carson show eleven times. That was like the biggest yeah. media outlet in the world yeah, at the Slim time. Yeah, Slim was famous because he'd also been in California Split, that movie. So, and and he had that name and dressed the way that he dressed. Did you when this was all part? I of I didn't your see dream, the fame coming in '89. In fact, I raised my head up. You know, right, that's what I'm asking. You don't yeah. want to do. You don't want to raise your head up. You want to keep it down, stay focused, do what you do. So but you when you're 24, right, you drank it all in. Drank it all in. I know that. You know, I flew everybody home on a private jet, which I'd promised I was yeah, going to well, do. Yeah. Um. I. You know. Um. And so I promised all my friends. I said, I'm going to win it. and I'm going to fly you all home on a jet. And I think that you know, spent like a couple thousand on the dinner, which was a lot in Vegas at the time. And so I raised my head. And I started to think I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. And uh, and then uh, that ego and that cockiness, you're going to get smacked around. Well, it seems You like, are going to get smacked around sure. because, because you get away from fundamentals. Instead of what got you there, you st- all you're thinking is I'm so great. And, you know, it's just, it's just a really – it's a real tough thing that I've seen almost every young poker player go through. Every time someone comes out of nowhere and wins something, I'm like, man, they're in trouble. And they, and then they have the temerity, and then they have the and somehow they'll insult me along the way. You know, oh, I'm <laughs> Phil. I'm going to smoke him. I'm younger these, than Phil, and I won. Or yeah, there's like 20 of those guys that have disappeared. You know, forever. That if oh Phil, well Phil's no good. I'm better than he is. These guys cutting me down at the knees, but then they, they disappear for 10 years. You so know? how do you think you? How do you? What do you think? How, so so I look at this about. I between. never disrespected my elders in poker, I, and, and I never did that. But I did. But you did embrace this idea. You did, you know, allow the um, whether it's like narcissism. You allowed that I'm great thing to really like. Um, Absolutely. To, you you allowed yourself to kind of suffuse yourself with this idea. A bit, it's a, a bit narcissistic. I mean, n- yeah. knowing the true definition of narcissism, yeah, nowhere close to that. But 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 to the public listening who understands the concept. Of yes, narcissism. you didn't have a narcissistic. You didn't have a narcissistic disorder. I'm saying, but there is right, a. Right. You give in to the 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 narcissism that's in all of us. Let's say absolutely but to, uh, into too much of it. Absolutely. Get, and, you have to imagine too that what had I done in my life? I mean, I was someone who never felt, uh, you know, special. Uh, struggled with That's his grades. Yes. Struggled with. So you go. So my self esteem was not anywhere where it should have been, in the important matters. And then when with with people when people with low self esteem start achieving great things, yes. they get completely messed up. You see, with every young athlete in the yes. world, you know. And I don't want to mention any names. I don't want anybody mad at no, me but of course. These guys, well, but. but and then I think when that happened, and it's also there's this discordant thing because it's low. The real problem isn't it's low self esteem um, mixed with the with ego. It's low self esteem yes. mixed with I'm great. Yep. And it's when those things collide that looks it's ugly. incredibly painful and ugly. It's ugly and it's painful to the people around you. Yeah, for sure. It's painful to yourself. I mean, it's just like you know, you, you can't carry it. This is a little narcissistic, you know. So two things occur to me to a- ask in this moment. One is so part of what I th- I saw happen then because around then is when I started really paying attention to, to poker, as a lot of people did. One is at a certain point you really embrace – like now I think you, you are able to talk about it in a different way. But you uh, embraced being the first heel in poker. You – because whether you wanted to or not, you didn't run away from it. You like ran towards it. 
I never embraced being the first heel. I, I, I hated the fact when poker became huge in 2002, 2003. This is after Rounders. This yes. is after, after the great contribution that you personally made. And once we started becoming really famous in 2003, 2004, I hated the fact that I was the bad boy. But I'm and talking I, about before. I'm saying that before that, when these articles would be written, you would, I would watch you know in casinos. You didn't try to downplay it. You, you would give quotes that would fuel it. I was authentic. Sure. Uh, but I never viewed myself as a bad guy. And that's or a what I'm saying. I know. Yeah. I know you knew you were a different kind of person, but but you didn't say to the public, "You have me wrong." When you were young. Well, there was no public. Fine. The public didn't come along until. No, but like Pete Olson wrote that article in like '94 about Pete Olson, who was at my charity tournament. Last yeah, who's night. great, yeah. a great friend of mine. He wrote yeah. that article like around '94 or something like that, and. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I remember. Listen, my ego, my ego was, you know, uh, definitely out of control. But I was never a bad guy. I, agree. I never you... disrespected people. I never mistreated people. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a big difference between sure. I was raised the right way, but I just didn't know how to handle it. How did my re- my sin was talking about myself too too sure. often. <laughs> yes, and then now you still get in trouble. How would you? How did you reel yourself back in? Uh, you just. You, you just know something. You just, I tried to reel myself in every single day. I knew something was wrong wow. from the start, you know, and you just like, you know, the only way that, that people really reel themselves in is when most of the money starts to disappear. Uh. And then you're like, all right. And now it's just like it's like I never hit rock bottom, but it felt like a bottom to me. Sure. Maybe I had a $200,000 condominium and all my cars paid for. So maybe I was worth 250000 or 280000 in cars and, and houses sure. and stuff in eighty nine ninety. but all of a sudden I'm struggling to pay a 1500 a month. You right. know? Oh. And that's painful. And yeah. when you hit that, you know, I remember driving you know, When this up, whole thing that you'd built your fragile like sense of self on mm-hmm. could crumble People go one of two ways. So you, so what happened? You're driving. I mean, I remember that. You know, I mean, my wife was helping me. She's very patient, and she helped me a lot. And I remember driving up to Escanaba, Michigan, from Madison, Wisconsin. It's a four-hour drive yeah. to play poker Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. And I was so into my wife and kids that I would drive home. That I after I was done at after the casino closed at one in the morning. I would drive straight back to Madison. So I'd get there at 5 or 6 in the morning and then I would just sleep all day and I'd spend the week with my family. But I remember that $2,000, $3,000 that I made every weekend in Escanaba, Michigan at the Chip-In Casino. You know, uh, it's very humbling, you know. And, and so you rebuilt – you kind of rebuilt the way you looked at the game or how you wanted to be as you, a you had You had to be – you had to either – it's humbling to go play 10-20 limit sure. after you've won the main event. And so you become humbled, and then through through being coming humbled, everything comes more into balance. And I remember in 1999, 2001, 2002, 2003, I would go down and I'd play 200, 400 at the bike, at the Bicycle Club Casino or the Commerce Casino, and 2004, 2005, when everybody else was playing 2,000, 4,000. You know? Well, were you, was it because you'd also? But around that time, I had I, I had more I, money, but I felt like I felt like I felt like this is the appropriate level for me to play at my money wise and yeah. I'm going to I'm going to eat my ego which was a big thing but I remember at that same time so I, the, I only have two more things really and I want to talk about uh, just obviously the contribution you made to to, to my life and, and Dave's life um, but uh, I remember I don't know if you still are but you, there was a period of time where you were playing a lot of Chinese poker which is a form of gambling it's not really poker there's a lot there's a lot of skill involved unless everybody's great at it 
Yeah, but you were playing with guys who were great at it. Well, that's what you think. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> that's, that's what you would tell yourself. But mm. I want to ask about gambling, which is if you know all this stuff and you understand that your, your, your ability to find distinctions that make you better than everybody else is not in games of gambling, but it's in, in, in games that have an element of chance that, that, that you can um, control and, and that you can manipulate by your greater skill. What draws you to these other gambling games? And are you, have you, are you now sort of on the other side of that? Or well, do you it's still do it? Because, because the new version of Chinese poker is called Open Face. And there's been a lot of articles written about it. It's been an Esquire. It's been in a lot of magazines talking about Open Face. Now, one thing I realized about Open Face is when I was first introduced to the poker world, I smoked everybody because I'm great at picking up games quicker. Because that's, that's what I've done my skill. whole life, right? And then what happened is what three is open months, face? Just in case people don't know, yeah, it's like you know, it's a, it's a version of Chinese poker. It's hard to describe. I think it's better just to Google it. Okay, you know, but it's a game where you can look at everybody's cards. Yes, it's perfect information game. Right, not quite perfect information, but everybody's cards are face up, and you use all fifty-two cards. And I realized, you know, after within six eight months, I won a couple hundred thousand to start, and I lost it all back. Everybody passed me after three months, and then we realized that the chess masters are the best in the world at this ver version. Ah. So I kind of stepped back away from that, only playing with my friends. Now they invented a new version that has a lot more incomplete information. Which you're pineapple open face. <laughs> Now, I'm very sensitive. I play a lot of people, but I, I know who's better than I am and who isn't. And so I kind of, you know, um, if I've been beating someone and, and I may or may not be better than them, I'll continue to play. I don't know. But uh, the guys that really crush me, I just, you know, most times I'm like, all right, they're just better than me. Right. That's interesting because in the, in the tournaments, as you said, you like the idea that it's the best players in the world. But you do understand that when you're playing games just for money, you're happy to play against not the best players in the world. Maybe I'm egotistical in saying that, uh, you know, and I apologize, but I think most poker games, yeah. I feel like I could become the best in the world sure. in almost every poker game. Sure. Or at least close, you know? And I think because it makes sense to me, there's a, the element of reading people, uh, there's an element of strategy, and, you know, and for some reason, a lot of people, even the great players, don't see the nuances in some of these games. It's surprising to me after years that they still don't see it. And so I think, wow, there's something, there is something there, you know, that allows me to, to compete at the highest levels. Now, with the Chinese, with this. Chinese and open face yeah, Chinese. Yeah, games that are more gambling than they are strategy games. What's the draw for you to those things? What's I just the enjoy playing. It's not like, you know, I mean, I, I don't play uh, craps. Uh, right. I, I'll play some high limit slot machines, but I'm lifetime ahead and I've gotten amazing comps. I'm not really a gambler. But those games, I just, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to learn. To, to try to figure better. out how to play well, yeah. really well. Probably hurts me a little bit in the tournaments that that I do this. So so last night at the thing and then on Twitter once or twice, you've said uh, Koppelman and, and Levine stole my life for uh, in rounders. <laughs> so let's just uh, discuss it for as we finish up here. All right, go uh, ahead. What, 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 what do you even mean? Well, you told me a while back, you said, Phil, we were a little bit nervous you might sue us. You told me that. No, that's, no I never said those words ever in my life. But here's what is true, that you and Huck seed were the only young people when we were thinking about that character. You know, I was playing in the New York poker world. I was obviously playing poker every day at the Mayfair. But you were the only kind of young guys who were out there succeeding at a very high level and who had gone to college and who had to face uh, a certain kind of decision where there were lots of other things you could have done, it seemed like, um, with your life. But what, what is true – so for, for the record, it's important to say, um, just for you – 
the movie, we, we didn't know enough about you. The movie wasn't about you, but there's no question that you and Huck inspired certain aspects. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Am I narcissistic? No. Continue. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that, you know, as I said, the statute of limitations is up. I would tell you if we stole it from you, but we didn't. I love it. But, uh, but we didn't. But, but what is true is that when we were researching it, uh, I was down in, with my friend John Shecky Green Schechter, who's made a couple of World Series final tables, and uh, he made a couple of um, World Poker Tour final tables. And we were in at the United States Poker Championships, and I, I had won a Super Satellite, and I uh, entry into the main event, and I had cash, and you were playing 300-600 um, stud. And I had probably $6,000, which was my whole... That was my whole poker role, my whole bank, poker bank role. And I saw you there, and you were famous, and I was, you know, you were the poker player who kind of meant the most to us at that time. And I knew, and what should you have to play 3-6? What, <laughs> what should your bank roll be three to play 3-6? 400000 Right. Not six. And I had $6,000, and uh, I sat, I, I, I was like, I'm just doing it. So, and I think I had the minimum buy-in, right? Probably 6000 would yeah. be the minimum buy-in. Yeah. So I sit down in the game and I played and I just hung in. I was so nervous that every time it came to me, I maybe made one little raise and took a thing. But when I told Levine uh, about that, when I, when I got back to New York, that's clearly what inspired the scene that Johnny Chan is, is in, in in the movie. And the first draft of the script, the one that sold, um, Mike is playing against you, not against Johnny Chan. <laughs> and then because we had... Um, had used Johnny Chan, you know, setting the trap on Seidel, the director, John Dahl, said, you know, would it make sense if then it's Johnny who Matt plays? Uh, and we said, yeah, besides, you know, Helmut's is probably a jerk. So, because <laughs> of the time, and we didn't know uh, what a great guy you are. And no, and so we were like, yeah, that makes more sense for the story. So, and if Johnny couldn't come, then we, you were, we were going to come and, and ask you to do it. But... Um, there, there's no question that your, what happened to you and reading about you put, was one of the key cornerstone things that, that made poker so fascinating to, to me and to Dave. So, you know, I'm grateful for that, man, because it might change the entire direction of, of my life for sure. Thanks, Brian. Hey, Phil, thank you for doing this. You can follow Phil Helmuth at, what's your name on Twitter? Phil underscore Helmuth. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can email me uh, at the moment bk at gmail.com or just the moment bk at gmail.com phil help me thank you so much for this i really want you to get the main event bracelet because i think you did promise everybody you'd get another one after you won the first one didn't you <laughs> i've promised that for a long time and Go i still believe it. it i still Keep... believe it i don't care if there's ten thousand people yeah, i think you gotta Compliment. make you gotta make a pyramid that only has main event bracelet on it <laughs> the whole way and put it on your mirror phil help me thanks uh go you have a dinner reservation okay so thanks for being here all right Brian. thanks thank you for listening to grantland to hear more grantland shows in your earballs subscribe to grantland sports and grantland pop culture on itunes or Go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.